Come on, come on. Excuse me, one second. Now look, you gotta read first in inches, but you still gotta read the coverage, okay? Now I ain't trying to encourage sex out of wedlock. Don't put it on Uncle Smash. Okay. But if you're gonna do it, you're gonna need to think about logistics. You're gonna need the time. You're gonna need a place. And you're gonna need some fresh protection. That yeah, is right. You got some Can work to do, son. This is the Extra Hot Great Podcast, episode 26 for the week of April 11th, 2011. I am Empire Strikes Back collectible drinking glass from Burger King, David T. Cole. And I'm here with hyper-literate press secretary, Joe Reed. Indubitably. And Tammy Taylor wannabe, Tara Ariano. That's right, y'all. Hello, everybody, and uh, welcome to episode 26. Uh, we're recording this early as we will all be traveling this weekend. And other podcasts may just say, oh, we'll just take the week off. We'll just have fun. Screw you guys, not us. <laughs> we're taping early. We're taping a special episode, an all canon episode. Yes. From the users. We got four shows lined up that you've submitted from just a few days ago to a few months ago. As America's Funniest Home Videos all told us America, America. This is you. you. (laughs) So uh, let's get into it, shall we? Yes. Let's shall. Hi, y'all. This is Libby, and I wanted to nominate an episode of my favorite show, Friday Night Lights, to the canon. The episode I'd like to nominate comes from season one. It's episode 17 called I Think We Should Have Sex. And I think the episode really shows off what makes this series so fabulous. Um, The ensemble cast is used extremely well. There's great writing, and it really just gets to the heart of a lot of the characters. Um, You see some really good interactions between Tyra and her mother. It shows you how Tyra is the parent in that relationship and how she is constantly taking care of her mother and trying to keep her in a good situation. You get some insight into why Tim Riggins is the way he is, um, why he has such a hard time with relationships when you see his father choose to abandon him yet again. And there's a fantastic storyline with Julie Taylor and Matt Saracen, as well as Julie and her mother, Tammy Taylor. Julie and Matt have been dating for quite a while, and in the awkward, abrupt way that only high schoolers can do, they decide that they want to start having sex. So you want to maybe try and study again? And... I think we should have sex. M- morning? Well, I think it's time, don't you think? Yeah, me too. So, um, let's get on that. Good night. Bye, Matt! Hi, Miss Miss Coach. Um, it really shows off uh, quite well the tone of high school relationships and there is a great scene between julie and her mom when tammy finds out what julie and matt have planned are you and matt saracen having sex no we're thinking about it you're thinking about it 
Are you thinking about pregnancy? Are you thinking about sexually transmitted diseases? Well, I mean, obviously, that's why he's buying condoms. Oh, I see. So you're just buying condoms, and then when you buy condoms, that just makes you ready to make love to somebody, anybody. Making love. Don't do that. Don't you smirk at me right now. I am very upset. You are not allowed to have sex. You're 15 years old. I just, I don't see what the big deal. It's just one body part going into another. No, it's not. No, it's not. It's not just one body part going into another body part. And the fact that you think that it's just one body part going into another body part makes me real clear on the fact that you really are not ready for this. And I need you to be able to hear that. I need you to be able to hear me say that to you. I'm listening to you. Let me tell you what the big deal is. Let me tell you what can happen. What can happen is that you can be hurt and you can be degraded and you can become hard and you can become cynical. And I don't want that to happen to you. This is something that's special. It's something that's meant for people who are in love. Okay, I, I understand. And you can wait. I want you to be able to talk to me about it. Okay, I mean, we're talking, right? <laughs> it's emotional. Connie Britton turns in an outstanding performance in that scene. Um, the, the dialogue is very well written and she delivers it perfectly. I cry every time I watch it and I think that it is um, really shows off what a great actress Connie Britton is. Um, I really appreciate you considering this episode and I hope that you like it as much as I do and I'm looking forward to hearing your discussion. Thanks for the podcast guys. Keep up the great work. So what we decided to do with this episode was sort of uh, Joe and I split up the the list and we're each sort of sponsoring the discussion, <laughs> shall we say. So uh, I will be taking this one. Um, As if I'm, I had any shot at taking this one from I you. mean, I'm happy to do it because I feel like every episode of Friday Night Lights is the best episode of Friday Night Lights, including <laughs> the terrible second season that everyone hates. Yeah. Even even at its worst, it's still a great show. Yeah. Which will, you know, we won't get into that, but... Um, <laughs> So yeah, Libby made some great points as we heard with the clips that we that Dave cut. Um, the uh, the Tim Riggins plotline is uh, includes the the end pretty much of Brett Cullen in town playing his dad Riggins Senior, and we sort of see why, as she said, Tim might be a little bit screwed up um, as Coach finds that one, a very expensive camera has been taken from the AV room and comes to the house to ask. Mr. Riggins, who was seen leaving the room, whether whether he took it and doesn't realize that Tim is behind him. So it's a really awkward yeah. situation between Tim's real dad and his surrogate dad. Yeah. Um, and Tim, you know, defends his dad and then discovers the camera and goes out and gets drunk and gets his face smashed in because that's what he does. That is what he does. There's um, a really good moment in that scene where right at the end, Coach kind of turns around and says, I'm sorry, I didn't know he was there. Yeah. There's this real sort of, you yes. know, Dad, dad to dad, good dad to not so good dad moment. Yeah, but it's yeah. Like really says it to Tim's to Tim's dad. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yes. 
that he's, you know, this is supposed to be a moment between men, not yes. him trying to undercut right. Tim's exactly. dad's authority. So yeah, coach as always is the best dad. Yes. Um, and uh, in other troubled parent news, um, <laughs> Tyra's mother has just lost her job at the uh, at Buddy Garrity's car lot because she was sleeping with him and now they're not sleeping together anymore worst idea ever tyra's mom it's really bad and buddy does not handle it well by handing her six or seven hundred dollars <laughs> in walking around money as he puts it and this is around when lila is starting to figure out that things are not the greatest between her parents yeah when, especially when buddy comes home with flowers and he's very suspicious yeah but um i'm not really they i think the moments between tyra and her mom in this episode are, are much smaller um, on a Sunday morning, they're driving and, you know, Tyra's like, so I think we should get a paper and you can start <laughs> looking for a job because, you know, she's 15 and right. <laughs> this is her responsibility. Right. Wrangling the family kind of finances together. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then they, you know, her mom like flips a bitch, <laughs> pulls into the church parking lot and basically I remember puts their whole affair on shout. And- watching that at the time, it was just like. Watching her sort of stomp off mm. into the church congregation, mm-hmm. I think I jumped out of my seat and was just like, "Oh, oh shit, shit, she is not." <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. a it's a big moment, yeah. and I think if it's not Easter, it's certainly judging by the the sermon, it's definitely close to it. Yes. And so everyone is at church, like it's a big yeah conflagration. Um, but obviously, the main storyline involves. Um, Matt and Julie. And so before things even get to a head between them, as it were, or t- or between before things fall apart between Tim and his dad, uh, Tim gets a great, uh, <laughs> tries to give Matt some advice about the coming event. At football, right? Again. <laughs> so to speak. So to speak. Don't let these rookies tell you what's going on. You remember the first time you drove a car? Yeah, I crashed my grandma's car in LA and she drives me around. Good luck to you, Sam. <laughs> I just love that. Um, you know, when we were talking in the last episode about about writer a writer's show versus an actor's show, yeah. like, that's such a great character moment for both of them. Yes. Um, and meanwhile, Julie is getting advice as well from Tyra on uh, on how things are gonna how things may go and and what her goals are in this event. I mean, Matt's different, and I really like him, and he likes me. And it's just the perfect opportunity for me to control the whole experience, you know, get the information and gather the data. Wow. (laughs) That sounds real hot. For Matt, throw the guy a bone while you're gathering your data. So they're out there shopping and Tyra throws her a pair of leopard print thong underpants, which um, she declines to wear for their assignation, but then Coach finds them in the bathroom. Uh-oh. And so after um, Tammy has had this conversation that we heard earlier with Julie, she obviously decided to not tell Coach anything. And so then she has to sort of say, well, this is why, because I thought you'd go crazy, and she, nothing's happening. She's out at Lois's house, and then they call, like, great, no, she's not. The great unseen Lois. Yeah. Oh, God. So... Um, so it's important to Tammy that she, you know, she has a certain way that she wants to handle this, but at the same time, she, you know, is kind of at, at sea in terms of how to respond to all of this herself. Um, and she and Coach get a great kind of fighty, they're, they're kind of super talky on her side, very laconic, slow burn on his side yeah. scenes, which yes. there were a lot of in the show, and they're all great. So Julie and Matt do, he's borrowed at somebody's cabin, and she shows up and you know, they're making out and stuff, and she just keeps finding any excuse to not go through with it. Does it just 
smell like wet dog. You know what? Let's not do this. No, 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 I, I told you I wouldn't. No, 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 you, you, you really don't, and that's okay, because we don't have to. We, we don't? No. We just hang out or uh, eat or I don't know, whatever. Really? Yeah. No, but don't touch me right now. That's <laughs> just give me a minute, please. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. So they end up dorking out in the cabin like a couple of dorks. Seriously. Indian wrestling, and then they fall asleep and sleep through her curfew accidentally. Just is like that what that, is that what that leg thing is? Yeah. That's Indian wrestling. I think. What are you supposed to do? I don't know. Is it just like uh, arm wrestling with legs? I guess. Explain yourself. <laughs> I don't know, because it's also in that movie Flirting with Disaster, but okay. they do it differently. So right. maybe it's not. Maybe it's just called you leg wrestling. You seem so confident I don't calling know. Indian wrestling. I maybe thought maybe I was going to get an education in Indian wrestling. Well, I don't know. Well, we'll save that for the Indian wrestling podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I apologize. IWP, Enlighten us, as it's known. Anyone who can tell us that it might, maybe it's just leg wrestling. Um, but they sleep through her curfew, um, much like Rory and Dean did in the first season That's of Gilmore right. Girls. That's right. Maybe an unconscious homage or just a thing that every teenager does. Right. Um, and even though Libby called out the earlier scene between where, where Tammy is kills it in the scene with her and Julie, um, this following clip is actually the, this is the showstopper for me, Tammy Taylor-wise. You know, you and I have the exact same amount of experience being parents. We've been doing this job the same number of years and months and days as each other, and the truth of it is that we just don't have any control. You know, for the most part, we're just winging it. And I'm, you know, I don't, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do in this situation. But I'll tell you what, the most important thing to me is that my daughter be able to talk to me. A girl is entitled to that with her mother. My mother used to tell me that I was going to go to hell if a guy ever even touched me, and you know that didn't work. I'm sure as hell not going to do that to Julie. And we raised a smart, responsible, moral girl and I have faith in us and I have faith in her you know we just gotta let her go um, so I love how it, within the episode they show the evolution from Tammy's freak out of you are not allowed to have sex to right. this where yeah. she's like she's She's a teenager, and yes. we've done the best that we possibly could. And God, it's true. I can't. There are no better TV parents than oh, coach and Mrs. there is coach. no question. And Tammy Taylor is like one of my f- maybe all time favorite TV characters, and Personal someone era. that I aspire to be Honestly. one day, and I never will be. But, um, but this was a great showcase for her in particular, even though you know the story is supposedly about her kid. Yeah. Um. So I. I adore this episode. I absolutely agree. It should be in the game. It hits the exact right notes in that storyline from Tammy and Coach's perspective, yeah. where uh, the dominant emotion in Tammy was just she didn't know 
how to approach it in a way that wasn't going to fuck up her daughter in one way or another. Right. And she really had to try and balance it. And the way where, like, privately with Coach, she could just be like, look, we raised a good daughter and she's got a good head on her shoulders and we can trust her. And Yeah. But then with Julie, she could still just be like, there is a line. And, yeah. And it's like, that's that sort of push-pull with mm-hmm. the good, you know, good parents. Right. That... There is sort of a double standard of I'm going to tell you this thing, but I'm also going to be here when I know that you're not going to do what I tell you to do. Right. And, and I, I also like in that speech, sorry, no, when she when she, when they put in the character detail of like how, my mother said I was just going to go to hell. Yeah. And that gives like such a small glimpse, but it's really but of key glimpse. But it's really important, and it yeah. and it shows how that background informs her parenting decisions with Julie. Yeah. This point in the first season, I. This was when this was like a cult show, but like a serious, like this wasn't even like the celebrated cult show. This was still sort of finding its footing. And I remember thinking this was episode 17. And uh, for the first half of the first season, I remember thinking like, wow, that Connie Britton, because that was an actress who I had never thought very much of at all. I sort of compared to how I thought of Jean Triplehorn before Big Love. Or Elizabeth Perkins before Weeds, where uh, like Spin City, she played the coach's wife in the movie of Friday Night Lights. Yeah. And she wasn't, like, anything to really write home about. And it's just a testament to the right role. And I remember sort of... And great writing. Yeah, yeah. and great writing, and that's it. And um, the first half of the first season, I was like, that Connie Britton's doing pretty okay. And then this episode hit, and then everybody was just like, fucking Connie Britton, Fuck get that yeah, lady Connie in Britton. Emmy. Yeah, yeah, right, exactly. Yeah. And the fact that she didn't get... I mean, whatever, like, that show didn't get the Emmy nomination... Uh, attention it deserved ever yeah and but that was the most but her in the first season was the most egregious thing Uh, sure but the emmys are bullshit of course but i I would just add that no yes getting mad about the emmys is like getting mad about but this is what i do parade okay i know i know i know i know (laughs) i don't mean to i'm an awards person i know know. we have to sort of accept that i know (laughs) i know um one of the things i liked about um the show and, and this episode in particular is how they managed to sort of hit all the pressure points of, of growing up without making people caricatures. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like everybody's had that awkward makeout moment, you know, and everybody's had these horrible high school experiences, but the show doesn't sort of, you know, go into caricature territory. Like, you were talking earlier similarities between this and Gilmore Girls. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and obviously very different shows and yeah. very different, you know, one's on the comedy spectrum, one's on the drama end right. of the spectrum. But that difference where the character seems so much more grounded and you really kind of feel like there's just a camera hovering in these people's lives as yes. opposed to sort of this overstructured universe where things will happen and lessons will be learned and, right. and yeah. people will act a certain way so that you get the point. Right. Well, yeah, it doesn't we, seem to exist here and that's really a credit to actors and writers and, and everybody involved. Well, I think the thing that happens with this show too is that it, characters move in such tiny adjustments yeah. in the way that people, people do, do, you know? Yeah. And we haven't even talked, I didn't even talk in, the, in, in my intro about um, th- that you know, there's this whole other plot line with Jason Street trying to qualify for the Paralympics. Oh, right. That you know, in any other show, that would be like, look at the wheelchair guy right. making out with a girl, and like even in that plot line, his friend um, gets that line where he's like telling a story to um, 
Alexander Wentworth and then he interrupts him and is like, take it easy after school special or whatever, like, which is great. Yeah. The other part of this and, you know, it's not with this episode in particular, but I think it really helps the series is how a shot and process. You really get this sort of uh, film quality and, you know, they obviously do some post-processing and they add a lot of grain to it. So it has this very sort of um, rawness Mm -hmm. to it that really... Helps the story and that music and the music. Yeah. I was going to say, yeah. oh my god, it's yeah. so good. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. All right, so shall we put this to the vote? Sure. All right, Tara, yay. what say ye? Yay, I say yay Joe? for sure. Yay. Yes, I think we all three are in agreement. Yay. All right, so Friday Night Lights. I think we should have sex. You are hereby inducted into the extra hot great canon. Congratulations. Moving on, here's one from friend of the show, John Ramos. You may know him as Coach Baron. Hi, Dave, Tara, and Joe. I love the podcast, as you know, and thanks for taking the submission. I doubt it will surprise you that I'm submitting an episode of Terriers for consideration for the canon, specifically the 10th episode, Asunder. As you know, this episode deals with Gretchen's wedding, and at the beginning, Hank is a mess, almost resigned to ending his year and a half of sobriety while Britt is on cloud nine after Katie just accepted his proposal. I think the episode is structurally brilliant and dramatically satisfying in a couple ways. Probably most obvious is how thoroughly their situations have reversed by the end, which I found especially poignant because Hank is usually the one who the show kicks in the balls. It's also, I think, a really great blend of action and setup. On the setup front, we're introduced to the key character of Laura Ross, reintroduced to the villain Ben Zeitlin, and get an idea of what Zeitlin is up to with the Montague property, all elements that will drive us to the end of the season. And on the action front, it's wonderful how we get to see Hank desperately pull out all the stops to save Laura, who at first has no idea how much danger she's in. Also, the episode has my favorite guest characters, Britt's three techie friends who are awesome every moment they're on screen. Examples of said awesomeness are the Bobby Kennedy joke, the one guy taking a nap in the bed in the background of one shot, and the fake email address another guy comes up with, which is gigabyteme69. The other thing I would say is that the acting in the breakup scene is amazing. Michael Raymond James's choice to pull his jacket over his head was gut-wrenching. And the part I love most is where Katie won't tell Britt who she slept with for Britt's protection. The implication being that she knows what he would do, which is born out in the future. It's really an amazingly tense episode on multiple levels. And while it's true it's light on Hank-Britt interaction, for me that makes the fact that it's so good even more impressive. So there's my submission, and thanks so much for doing an awesome podcast. All right, so thanks, John, for that. Um, this is, uh, like you said, the 10th episode of the first and tragically only season <laughs> of Terriers. Yeah. Um, so this point in the season, Hank had just just recently gotten shot trying to save uh, Britt and Katie, mm-hmm. and so his arm's still in the sling, and he had also just gotten recently busted by Gretchen for trying to basically break her up with uh, Jason? Yep. I think. Jason. Jason. Um, so he's been disinvited to the wedding. And as John said, this is, uh, very uncharacteristically light on Hank and Brit together, but there's a scene right at the beginning where, uh, Hank is wallowing and sort of drowning his sorrows in the coffee at the diner as the diner owner is sort of like not so silently grumbling and cursing. Um, and so Brit comes in and they have this really cool interaction, uh, which is very characteristic of the show. You have been here for a while. You're reading the home section? Rereading it. You're gonna be okay. I'm fine, really. Have a good time. 
So I won't go if you don't want me to. Gretchen wants you and Katie to be there. You, you should go. I'm serious, I don't even like weddings. Chicken always tastes like fish. It's disgusting. You just put a ring on your girl's finger. You join society, boy. Hey, listen, you should leave town today. You know, just get in the truck, go for a drive, check into a resort, watch Love Actually on pay-per-view. I'd hang myself. That's oh, a really good movie, Hank. <laughs> Seriously, man, just don't hang around town today. I'll start messing with your head. You call me if you need anything? Sure. How about a shotgun? Just kiss the bride for me. Don't tell her it was from me, though, okay? It's, it's barely, you need the visual, but he uh, gives him a nice kiss on the forehead there it's at the end of that. It's adorable. Yeah. Also, you guys, Brit loves love, actually. I'm just saying, like, <laughs> as if I could not love Brit. There's anymore. also a funny moment before the part that you clipped where the, the diner owner comes over and asks Brit, are you going to are you gonna order food? And Brit ri- immediately, like, without a beat, goes, I would never eat here. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Well, another thing about like chicken tastes like fish. It's disgusting. Mm-hmm. Like it's just they pack so much great character stuff yeah. into that minute of dialogue. Mm-hmm. Like it's absolutely perfect. Um, so if there's anything I I wish we had more of in the episode, it's Hank and Britt together. But mm-hmm. for but for dramatic very purposes, good reasons, yeah, yeah. they're not. Yep. So anyway, so uh, Britt and Katie are invited to the wedding, and they go to the wedding, and Britt gets red wine spilled on him, and he calls Hank uh, spilled on a shirt. And uh, he calls Hank to see if he can break into Hank's apartment to get a shirt because it's closer to where the wedding is and like blah, blah, set up, set up for the Mm -hmm. plot. So Hank basically gets all the excuse he needs to come out to the wedding. He'll run him out a shirt and then proceeds to linger around in the bar near the wedding so he can both skulk around. Like a creepy creepy. stalker. Yeah, like a creepy stalker. Uh But then also so that he can have the bartender pour him a drink and he can stare at it intently and be tempted to break his uh, AA vows, whatever, (laughs) like commitment. Um, But so before he gets the drink, he goes into the bathroom, um, splash some water on his face, and that is where he overhears the villainous Ben Zeitland and uh, his henchman Tansuit, which I always love that nickname, <laughs> Tansuit, yeah. um, planning something awful. Zeitland, uh, played by Michael Gaston, who played such, made such a good villain. On yeah, that he was whole great. Season. He was really fantastic. Um, <clears throat> and so, like, forgive me if I can't keep up with all the various machinations of land grabs it's and Montague Group and whatever. Yeah. Basically, the crux- shady profits to be made. Yes, yes. exactly. And there involves shady stealing or so land. it seems. Yes, yeah. and uh, and Hank comes across the fact that they are keeping, they are meeting with uh, this reporter named Laura Ross, who becomes very important in the second, in the back half of the season. And uh, she's on to a story about Zeitlin, and there's a leak in Zeitlin's office, and you quickly find out that this is while well, Hank is is uh, snooping on them with the uh, basically the with lone, the lone gun. gunman. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. I mean, but let's, yeah. yeah. Um, and then so it becomes clear that Zeitland hasn't uh, called her in to give her an interview, but basically he's called her there to strong arm her into revealing whatever source she has that right. he believes is from his office. And so he gets to uh, this really kind of like shit gets real immediately and we find out what he's capable of i have many sources i'm a reporter Mm. i don't have much respect for internet journalism frankly but that doesn't mean that people don't read it you have a source i'd like to know who it is you want me to reveal my source to you i do yes i would 
I don't think so. If you cooperate, I can help you. Help me how? Well, disclosure of some of the information in your articles may be a violation of federal law. I could keep you out of jail. I've heard that dance before. I could also refrain from suing you for libel for some of the things you've written about me. And I can ask Mr. Burke, before he calls the police, to remove the heroin from the trunk of your car. And after which he breaks into this laughter of, ha ha ha, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm not really kidding. Like, that kind of thing. Imagine. Um, Yeah, so Hank, of course, is convinced that Zeitlin is going to kill Gretchen uh, with fairly good reason. So he hones in on her cell signal. Or what did I say, Gretchen? Yeah, Laura. Laura. Gretchen's fine. She's getting married. Ladies are ladies. I mean, what's the difference? (laughs) Am I right, guys? Yeah. So, uh, (laughs) ladies, take a break, guys. (laughs) Let's talk. So he hones in on her cell signal and he texts her that she's in mortal danger, and she uh, semi ignores semi ignores the text as she's still trying to like drill Zeitlin for information and talking about conflict of interest between Terra and Western and the Montague Group again. Yeah. Shady dealings. Yes. So, uh, but then Zeitlin excuses himself and Tan Suit sort of moves in in a way that Hank and the nerds can't see, where he threatens Laura that they know where her mother lives. Yeah. And she needs to cooperate or else her mother's fucking toast. So, um, it's at this point that this, the, uh, the Bobby Kennedy joke that John was talking about in the submission comes up, and there's really no other graceful way to put this in the conversation. So just play it because it's hilarious. Come on, what can they do to her? They're, they're in a hotel full of people. Uh, yeah, tell that to Bobby Kennedy, all right? Really? That's too soon? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, funniest part about that. It's a good piece of business. It's a really good piece of business. So, um, finally, uh, Hank gets Laura to step out onto the sort of lanai veranda area of this hotel room. And from the room above... Uh, engineers it so that she passes him the address of her mother and he sends the nerds out to go rescue the mom and meanwhile he gets security to come to the room so that she gets out of the room and uh, he sort of hustles her into great great touch uh, Gretchen and Jason's limousine into the front seat into the front seat of the limousine and uh, (laughs) and then he goes and he confronts Zeitland and it's this great uh, you thought I was out of the game now I'm back in the game moment you can have this copy if you like gave one to Miss Ross and one to my partner. God only knows where they are now. If you go after Laura, this disc becomes very, very public. It's good to see you again, Mr. Delworth. Likewise. Oh, damn it! Oh! Uh, uh. I hit you harder. God <sighs> oh, damn. Oh, <laughs> shit. <laughs> that was Tan Suit. That was Tan Suit who delivered the, uh, the crushing blow. That's such blow. A, uh, a feline, you know, just did not land on his feet moment. You know when cats do that? When they like they do something and they obviously <laughs> fall over. And they, smell, and they kind of look around. It's like, that didn't happen. Yeah. yeah. Right? <laughs> so, so that's the A-plot. Uh, a great sort of 
uh, thrusting back into the major plot of the season that you kind of thought was at least lying dormant, if not uh, finished, and it really ramped up. Yep. And also, just on its merits, an incredibly tense series of scenes with mm-hmm. Laura in the hotel. So the B plot, obviously, is Britt and Katie at the wedding. Uh, she's acting really weird. She won't have wine, but then she will have wine, and then she's getting sort of, she's super touchy about everything because, of course, the running secret in this is that she's pregnant and Britt's not the father because she cheated on him with her college professor. Well, and the reason that he's sort of needling her is that he's he's found a he's pregnancy found test the pregnancy in the garbage. Test. And so that sort of was the impetus for him to propose. Right. And so I, she's not so having the wine, so he's like, are you pregnant? And she's like, what? I'm not pregnant, also, Chug. I believe the paternity is in question. Yes. Not that... There's that, too. But yeah. it's, yes. in, yeah, it's in question yes. enough, and it's... Yes. 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 So, um... So... She gets twigged by sort of all the wedding stuff, and he does, and she runs off to puke, and so finally she comes back, and he's like, okay, like, what's the deal? Are you pregnant or not? And she finally says that she is, but then she pulls him in and she whispers to him the reason why she couldn't tell him about it, which is obviously that she cheated on him. And then he bolts, and then there is this (laughs) excruciatingly heartbreaking, tense scene where he sort of confronts her on it, and he's just sort of, as John said, he pulls the coat over his head. He just and he's falls just like, apart. He just yeah. falls apart. He's, and he's like just, a little boy. He is. And it's just like, why? And she finally says, in the one maybe doesn't ring entirely true moment of the entire season for me, which was when she's just like, you. why'd she cheat on him? She said you weren't ready. You know, you, right. you'd marry me and you'd hate me and you'd hate your life, which... It's too cliche for this show. Well, and we already know from a previous episode, like she's had the conversation with Hank where she's like, I can tell he's gearing up to yeah. want to propose to me. This is before she cheated on right. him. And she's like, she basically tells Hank, like, I'm not good enough for Brit. That's right. why I'm not okay with him trying to dodge his proposal that I know is coming. Right. Because I don't think that I'm worthy. Right. Yeah. So that's the real reason. That's but, the real reason. And yeah. it just, the whole thing... It ended up being... I guess it can be more than one real reason. Well, and the whole the whole storyline ended up being worthwhile in that we got some really good work out of those two characters. Yeah. And it was really good sort of emo- emotional catharsis by the end. But it really did feel like we need to sort of juice up the Brit half of this season with some kind of intensely personal thing. And the best they could come up with was that Katie cheats on him. And it just yeah. sort of felt... Too typical for the show, but, you know, whatever. I guess, but I feel like, I mean, I, I thought those episodes were, that episode especially where she where she talks, where she has that conversation with Hank, and when she cheats on him, you can sort of see, okay, there's like a, there's a kind of inevitability she, about it. Yeah. Like, as much as you hate it, you sort of feel like, well, people do fuck right. up in this way. Like, right. it's not. That is true. It's, I felt like they, even if it was somewhat contrived, that they managed to earn it in the end. I could go along with that. And then so by the end, uh, Hank sort of reconvenes with Britt, and he sees Britt sitting on a curb with his head down, and she sort of comes up to him and, and is like, what's wrong? And then Britt looks up and gives him the saddest oh, face God. in the history of the universe. It's like yeah. next to Hangdog in the dictionary. It's so sad. Oh, oh my horrible. God, it just breaks your heart. Particularly if you adore Britt like you should. Yeah. Because why wouldn't you? When we were watching it back again, I was like, who dares make <laughs> Britt cry? I know. I, I can't know. handle it. So that's the episode. Yeah, that is. Oh, t- it was really tough for me to watch it again. Yeah, because I, as you say, I loved Brit. Yes, like, I loved him. Of course, why wouldn't you? 
I don't know. <laughs> but I will say in that scene where he looks up and Hank, when Hank finds him, yeah, that I thought, oh, you can tell it wasn't going to work out with him them because she let him come to a wedding in a black suit with brown shoes. Ooh, <laughs> that's so, the that's kind of observation joke. you're only going to get on Extra Hot Great. <laughs> I like that. That's a joke. <laughs> um, yeah, it was heartbreaking because was. they do spend most of the previous, you know, the first six or seven or eight episodes of the season making you really like them individually. Such a good couple, yeah. And and as a couple. Yeah. Um so it's it's hard, but at the same time, like the audience already knew that she had cheated on him and mm-hmm. that she had told Hank. So it's the, then there's that additional tension as a viewer of like right. Oh, it's going to come out, and I don't want to know what's yeah. going to happen well, when it comes out. There's that point where Hank brings him the shirt, and yeah. uh, Britt's saying, like, Katie's acting weird, and then I saw the pregnancy test. And you see Hank trying to be really casual about trying yeah. to get him to stop asking questions. Yeah, Hank is a very good liar. Hank's a very good liar. I mean, he's, he's an alcoholic, a, so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I also thought that Hank's storyline was great. And I especially like the way they sort of braided together his storyline and the wedding. Where, as you say, when he's leading her out. But yeah. but it, he, they, he and Laura are coming out at the same exact time that Gretchen and Jason are coming out to go on their honeymoon. Yeah, there was a lot of stuff like that where they would sort of intercut and intertwine. Yeah. And yeah. so I, I... But you can tell that he's he's 100% focused on the case now and he does not even glance at Gretchen and Jason. Or There's no longing look. It's just he's all business. Well, and that drink stayed on the bar. Yeah, like, from that moment. Like, once you yeah. could... It, it's, it's once work came along, it was like, that was his salvation that really got him yeah. snapped out of that headspace. Well, yeah. You could argue whether whether that he was actually going to drink the drink or if he just wanted to order it to make himself feel partly normal because he ditches sure. it before... Yeah, no, that is he's true. He's gone when the, by the time but, the, bar, the bartender sets it down. But I feel like there is a question of if he doesn't run into Zeitlin in the bathroom, does right. he go back and go back to the bar and sure. sit with that drink again? These like, are the questions we can ask from now until the end of time because there's no other seasons to complicate it. Bum me out. Now I've got the Brit face. Go! Oh. <laughs> but I also like that the closing line is um, is Brit. Brit doesn't tell Hank. I don't think he says that he's that they broke up. It doesn't he matter. Doesn't he say says, anything. He, he says sort of where, he's like, where do you want to go? And he says, I need a drink. Yeah. And Hank goes, I don't. I don't. And yeah. that's the that's the closer. And it sort of blacks out. And it's like, ooh, yeah, that's, that was hot. Yeah, that was a good that was a good ending. <laughs> like that, it really primes you for the next yeah. one too. Yes. Yeah. Um. So yeah, it's a great episode. It is. Um, the creepy skeevy lawyer is a excellent creepy skeevy lawyer. Oh, I yep. feel so like good. I've actually like in some moments in my life have been in conference rooms with that guy. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, in, in horrible meetings. Yes. And yep. just like, wow, yeah. how do you go home at night? How do you exist? How do people love you? Yeah. How does this work? Is this just a persona you have? Yeah. And you can drop it when you go home. Yeah. I feel like that's that kind of character. Like oh, he probably just... goes home and he's like, great dad. Yeah. You know, <laughs> He gets all the venom out when he's exactly. And, yeah. So I just, I just like he paints it that way, and I can yeah. really believe it. So Good I think, actor. and Gretchen turned out to be a really, really great character. Yeah, in those last few, like she was, she was that great mix of sort of tenacious, but not uh, too headstrong. That when she got them into sort of scrapes. That you weren't just sort of yelling at her and just being like, Laura. we're fucking things up. Yeah. Did I call her Gretchen again? Yeah. Oh my God. Why do I do that? I don't know. Are you having a stroke? Gretchen was a great a character too. Gretchen. So that's why I was thrown by what you were talking about. But you I'm mean sorry, Laura. you guys. I do <laughs> mean okay. Laura. The other. Um... He's, his head's already on vacation, guys. <laughs> He's thinking of blizzards right now. <laughs> uh, the other. Um, I guess if I had to make a quibble with this episode, I, I think the, the idea of the lone gun boys is a bit much. <laughs> that sort of super computer geek 
archetype that pops up in entertainment really annoys me where they can just do magical things with the computer yeah because the older writers that are making the show don't understand things quite <laughs> and they just that's the way they see it it's you just magic. type shit out and you yeah. can find out anything man you can you know if you want to find out where the you know the, yeah. the prime minister of canada is sleeping right now i'm sure this guy can do it right yeah. i mean that's the kind of thing so yeah and you know really there was three and it was just such it was just such a like oh, i wish they could have done something else with that make the little pull it back from sort of like the zaniness yeah um might have been stronger quibble. um but a really minor quibble and a really good episode. And I think John was absolutely right when he says the um, formula of this episode is quite a bit different from other episodes mm. in this series. And the two leads are sort of living separate lives during this episode. Yes. Um, but it still really works. Um, I, and this is not a, a dig on it, but I would just say, you know, if this don't make this your first introduction to the show. I mean, oh, it's a, it's, oh it's, yeah, yeah. Watch the whole season. Because this is tonally quite different yeah. from the show. The show, this this is a, a glummer, sadder episode. Yeah. yeah. Um, there's a lot of humor in, in, in other episodes. Yeah. And the variety works across the season and the yeah. arcs and things are going through. But, you know, it's whatever it is, 12 episodes. It's worth yeah. 12 hours of your time to watch sure the whole thing is. for sure. Absolutely. Um, but I think he's right. I mean, this is a stronger candidate because it is that you would think by looking at the math, this yeah. would be a weaker episode. But in fact, it's just as strong as any other. Well, episode. and it's so pivotal in the in mm-hmm. the season as yeah. well. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and it really stands out as the as the you know the ultimate Brett moment from from the series. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Brett. Absolutely. We well, miss you. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, uh, let's make this official, shall we, Tara? Yay. Joe. Yay. Absolutely. All right, Terriers Asunder. You are hereby inducted into the Extra Hot Great Cannon. Number three. Okay, I have to apologize. This is a really old one. It's been sitting in the tank for a while. And I lost the name of the submitter because my email went poof somewhere. Sloppy days. I'm sorry. So uh, if this is yours, give us a, give me some email in the comments. Yeah, on the comments on Twitter, something so we can uh, you know give you some kudos. So uh, all right, enough of that. Here we go with canon number three. Hi, I hope you guys aren't sick of talking about Aaron Sorkin. (laughs) First, I wanted to say I was really surprised that you talk about. Sorkin's horrible blog post. All right, just quick interrupt. <laughs> this is a really old canon submission, obviously. This is going back to like one of our first few episodes. For sure. Yeah. Yeah, so sorry. Without mentioning the most ridiculous part, he says something about a visceral reaction and writes in parentheses, um, after visceral, look it up. <laughs> I'm still sputtering over this, however many days later. It's so weirdly arrogant and douchey to write look it up in any case. Well, visceral, like really, that's your big impressive word that nobody would like recognize. We'd all be so stumped by that word. It's very cromulent. Whatever. Um, in the spirit of objectivity and being the bigger person, I want to nominate somebody's going to emergency, somebody's going to jail from season two of The West Wing for the canon. Um, it's not one of the big, grandiose premiere or finale episodes like Two Cathedrals or In the Shadow of Two Gunmen, but like those, it's funny and heartbreaking, and it might be my favorite standard episode of the show, um, mostly for the Sam storyline. This is the big block of Cheese Day episode where Toby has to deal with WTO protesters. 
And CJ talks to the cartographers for social equality, and Sam tries to get a pardon for an alleged Soviet spy. It also has a little bit of foreshadowing for Bartlett's season-ending MS story. Um, it, does, <clears throat> it does have some problems, like it has the standard Sorkin daddy issue story, and Sam's drama here is pretty much the same story that Josh Molina gets in Sports Night. And it's sort of unbelievable that no one has heard of the cultural bias stuff with the Mercator projection map, like no one on the whole staff can even guess what the group's issue might be. Um, but Rob Lowe maybe didn't get as much kudos as some of his co-stars, but he's just brilliant in this one. He's so righteous and stubborn on his crusade. And then you see him just get his heart crushed in that great scene with Nancy McNally. And the little little boy hurt face when he says, I don't know why you think I was like that, about Donna telling her friend to flatter him about how important he is. And his big breakdown speech in the end, it always really gets me when an actor chokes up a little and his voice cracks and Rob Lowe just does it so well here. Sam's idealism and outrage is really touching to me. Other moments, I love the opening meeting scene with Leo. Toby got a cool moment when the activists start yelling at him, and he just kind of smirks and throws up his hands and walks away. And I love all CJ's reactions to the cartographers and her, like, wary, alarmed face when she's seeing the different images on screen. It's hilarious. So that's my nomination for a really solid, classic episode of a show that had its ticks and its problems, but at its best was just some really breathtaking and beautiful television. All right. Thank you, uh, unnamed listener, for that submission. <laughs> Maybe from Canada? Maybe. I thought you cut, I heard you, a little. You cut a little? Outrage. Oh, oh, okay. Anyway. Anyway. Well, then thank you, doubly so. <laughs> um, so I would venture to say that of the three of us, I'm probably the West Wing guy uh, on the That's panel. We did still watch the show at this oh, yeah. point, though. Sure. And, and really enjoyed mm-hmm. it. Yeah. I feel, I, I generally stuck with, I definitely stuck with the West Wing through all seven seasons, but season two was when I was sort of especially rabid and sort of this show could do no wrong, which kind of makes it ironic that I'm getting this episode, but we'll get to that later. Um, so <laughs> I think, I mean, just to probably to put it out there overlangly. I'm not as big on the Sam episodes as I am on the episodes that feature other people. So that's probably a reason why. But anyway, mm-hmm. um, we'll get to that in a second. Yeah. So obviously in the season, this is positioned almost exactly before the shit hits the fan with the MS. So this is still while the season is uh, exploring more kind of standalone stuff. And the title of the episode, Somebody's Going to Emergency, Somebody's Going to Jail, comes from a Don Henley slash The Eagle song called New York Minute. Um, which my dad loves, and I do not. <laughs> um, so, there is something about Eagles music that just... It, 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 I have an immediate aversion to it. Yeah. I don't know what it is, if it's the, the culture around the Eagles, it's the kind of people that like the Eagles. I don't know your yeah. dad, but I'm just saying. <laughs> no, I, uh, we'll just call it, call it blanket. We're not casting aspersions on my dad, but yes. Thank you. Um <laughs> But there's just it's I, I just get this picture of some sort of like uh, howdy towdy kind of they um, are terminally unhip uh, baby boomer sort of very yeah and then it just oh Tara's got her hand up well I was just gonna say go ahead finish your thought I just I'm just I'll be next just the kind of person that I would not hang the kind of person that owns a uh, custom boat shop <laughs> let's say. <laughs> That's, that is those are really eagle fans. Specific. That is they very make specific. they make customized, personalized uh, rope dock ties 
that you put your name on or something like that. They make the kind of they own the kind of businesses that fill Sky Mall. Okay, that's the Eagle fan to me, and sort of how pointless they are. And uh, I've really gone way too far. <laughs> this song, this the Eagles in general, and Don Henley in particular, give me a particular kind of like boring childhood Saturday afternoon feeling. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's the like light FM nature of it. Yeah. Yeah. I feel that way. It's totally different, but about Crocodile. No, not Crocodile Rock. Island Girl. Whenever I hear it, it really depresses me. It's also a type of music that I feel that the fans of that music really want to share with you. Mm. Yeah. You know, it's like... uh, like oh, Homer going to the concert and he's playing all his music. He's like, you know, now it's time to rock. You know, and like, yeah, it's, well, it's sort of like that. And the thing that I sort of find even more strongly with this uh, particular song is that Don Don Henley is such a great sort of blood brother for Aaron Sorkin mm. in so many annoying yes. ways. Like I can hang with some of the Eagle stuff. I can very rarely hang with some Don Henley stuff. Boys of Summer. Oh, accepted. that's another one. Boys of Summer totally I think depresses is, me. Oh, see, I kind of love Boys of uh, Summer. Bums me. Out. But the rest of just Don Henley's whole persona. Um, I can see you round oh, yeah. shot in the yeah, sun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, the deadhead sticker. Before we move on, song. sorry. Yeah. Since we've gone on this tangent about yes. the song. <laughs> the greatest use of New York Minute in all of television history is when Ross takes I Marcel it might be a to the hospital <laughs> after he's been swallowing Scrabble tiles. <laughs> And then he wakes up and he wraps his little monkey fingers around Ross's finger. And then Ross realizes, I am going to be a good dad. That's the best use of New York Minute. Okay. Please continue. Okay. So um, the episode begins with Sam has uh, been sleeping in his office. And Leo sort of comes in early and figures this out. And Sam is doing this because he is uh, incredibly depressed to have found out that his father, after being married to his mother for 28 years, has been continuing on an affair with a mistress for just that long. And his mom has just found out and his parents are getting divorced. So um, in the midst of all of that, uh, as our submitter said, it is one of Leo's pet uh, big block of cheese days, which was introduced in season one, which was it is basically uh, that staffers have to hear have to take meetings with sort of fringy kind of organizations that wouldn't normally get the. Uh, it's like the Ron Swanson uh, Parks and Recreation episode. It kind of yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's also a lot of people that are going to be insisting they are not crackpots. Oh yes, very good. Yeah, this episode probably should have been titled "I Am Not a Crackpot." Well, I think the first one isn't it called these the those crackpots the crackpots and these women, which was again it's that these women half of that title is so sore to me. Um, but so in the first season, it was really well established that. Uh, everybody sort of blows off these meetings is really uh, annoying and they don't want to have to do them and these people are crazy and by the end they all end up being sort of uh, either touched or weirdly like they can't get their brain off of in the case of CJ as we'll see they can't quite get their brain off of this weird idea that they've been presented so um, the episode then splits into three distinct sections Sam's section is the most prominent where he gets the he gets brought by Donna a, fr- a college friend of hers named Stephanie who wants Sam to intervene in her grandfather's pardon case. Her grandfather is a man called Dan- named Daniel Galt who was a White House staffer uh, put in jail for communist uh sympathies and leanings I feel like they couldn't make part of the story is that they couldn't make actual treason yeah Yeah. so they they got him for some sort of ancillary thing Um, during the whatever during the HUAC Nixon McCarthy era and he's already dead and he's already dead but her father this woman's father is dying and before he dies this woman wants to have uh 
her grandfather's name exonerated for the benefit of her father. So, and Sam, of course, wrote a paper at Princeton making the case for uh, this Daniel Galt. So this he's the perfect guy to go to. Uh, and Donna kind of sweetens the pot with her friend and tells uh, Stephanie that when she goes to uh, ask Sam, just say that say that you heard around that he was the guy to go to because he's really got the president's ear. Flatter him, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, so Sam takes the case and first takes it to uh, meet with the FBI agent, played by Clark Gregg, who shows up every once in a while and is kind of super awesome. Yeah. Um, and Sam kind of makes a total ass of himself in front of this FBI agent in sort of this righteous fury of... And to be fair, there is righteous fury to be had over the, the McCarthy era. Sure. Um, and But sort of Mike, the FBI agent, is trying to... Uh, very sort of steadily make the case of like, there are things that you don't know. There are files that the FBI doesn't talk about. We don't uh, publicize our victories, even though our fa- our defeats are very public. And um, so Sam goes from that, then he goes up one step further and he escalates it to uh, Nancy McNally, who is the national security advisor played by the wonderful Anna, Anna Devere Smith. And uh, it's such a good scene where she's basically, it's amazing. It's an amazing scene where she's <clears throat> basically telling him the same thing. Like, do not escalate this. You, you need to drop this now. Um, there are things you can't know, but I'm telling you, if you trust me, this is not an avenue you want to pursue. And Sam sort of digs his heels in, which sort, which causes uh, Nancy to haul out the big guns. According to reti- Sam. excuse me, please. According to retired KGB Colonel Oleg Prosserov, a search of the files in Lubyanka reveals only one reference to Galt that he was approached in 1943 and labeled highly uncooperative and a poor prospect for recruitment. Sam, Daniel Galt was a spy. Oh, my God. He was a Soviet spy. Based on what? Diplomatic cables intercepted by U.S. Army signal intelligence in the 1940s. If that was the case, why couldn't the U.S. attorney make espionage in the 1950s? Because the cables weren't decrypted until the 1970s. You're telling me that we cracked some obscure Russian code and suddenly we learned Galt was a spy? Yes. That's crap. If the FBI had proof on Galt, they would have told the world about it. No, they wouldn't have, Sam. Nancy? No, they wouldn't have. Neither would the NSA, neither would Central Intelligence. You don't show someone you've broken their ciphers unless you have to. Galt was long dead. But before he was, he was an agent called Blackwater. He was a delegate at Yalta, and he returned to the U.S. by way of Rostov, where he was awarded the Order of Lenin. Yeah, well, I'll believe that when they show me the file. And then she shows him the file. It's thick as fuck, y'all. It is, seriously. It's huge. And like the really like the really code word classified stuff has all been blacked out, but the all the important shit is there. And she sits there and is she's she tells Sam, read it, I will sit here while you read it, and when you are done, I'll be on this conference call in the meantime. Like Nancy McNally was the greatest side character on that show. And of all the sins of Aaron Sorkin's crack-addled inability to get his scripts in on time. Remember when he was on crack, you guys. <sighs> and, but so that, and that was one of the reasons why he got bounced from the show, was that he couldn't get the scripts in on time, and they yes. would lose guest stars. And Emily Proctor, very famously, like was basically brought in as a featured guest star, and then had to let her go because he couldn't get his scripts in on time. They never knew when to get her. Yeah. Nancy McNally wound up being a casualty of that too, and it was shitty because she was so good. Every one of her scenes. There's a really good uh, little moment at the beginning of this scene where she's just sort of on the conference call, and there's somebody on the other side who doesn't recognize her voice and doesn't know when she's talking. She always has to say who she is every time she talks, and it's such a true moment for a conference call. Yeah. Yeah. And such a frustration of professional life when you're in this high stakes meeting 
and the guy above you doesn't yeah. really know who you are. Well, well and then she, she says also to says, Sam, I'm the only woman on this call. Yeah. Yes. Like, yeah. Oh, she's amazing. Hats off to you. Um, so now, so, so now Sam knows the truth that this guy truly was a spy. And the daddy issues kick in hardcore now because now this is another, uh, father who's lied to his children and and is and is somebody is basically a man you never knew you know uh very much mirroring his own father and his own father's secret life so he meets back up again with donna and he says that thing to her about how uh you told your friend to flatter me and i don't know why you would think i would respond to that and that's kind of that's a very uh puppy dog Sam yeah he's very wounded when he he's says very it. Like, is that how you see that? me and Donna and Sam don't have a whole lot of storyline no. together and they actually work really really well together yeah, they and were that nice scene and scene. she's incredibly when she sees how wounded he is she's incredibly like guilty like sincerely yeah uh, apologetic yep. and it's a really good scene between them um but so armed with this truth then he uh he is determined to tell Stephanie the exact, the exact, the harshest truth possible, and really sort of like shatter her illusions. And Donna is begging him not to, and uh, and they have this sort of heated exchange. There was a translator in the Hungarian trade mission named Shava Demsky. She was murdered in 1952. She was about to reveal the name of a Soviet agent called Blackwater. This girl's going to find out who her father was. Sam, you meant grandfather. Paging Agent Freud. <laughs> um, he is so tired, you guys. <laughs> so, uh, so ultimately, he backs down and he doesn't tell Stephanie the truth. He instead says that uh, that he faced a roadblock and he's going to keep trying. And she says, "Well, thank you. That's all he'll need." Yeah, he BSs her. Yeah, he's going to BS her and wait out, wait it out until her dad dies, and then. Uh, Will or will not tell her the truth. So that's the Sam storyline. The Toby storyline is he's meeting with those uh, uh, World Bank protesters. And he's it sort of gets out his hatred of protesters, even though he's a protester at heart, because uh, he's, of course, incredibly liberal. But he's incredibly frustrated with kind of the, uh, the trust fund, trustafarian mm-hmm. types who are exclusively the as types are who are... We well, of course, and who wouldn't be. Mm-hmm. And this was probably around the same time as the... Uh, the Seattle, yeah, yeah. This, is, this would be like spring '01. This would have been spring '01. Yeah. yeah. So, um, and then he, instead of engaging with these protesters, because he basically gets up front of them and he tells them that uh, they fucked up by not having cameras there, because without cameras there, he has no uh, impetus to engage with them. He can just sort of sit back and read his newspaper, and he does. Yeah. But then, so in the uh, in the course of the story, his assigned uh, police protection played by Roma Mafia, who you people would know from Nip Tuck uh, and also A Billion Law and Orders. And, and Chicago Hope. Yeah. And, she's, and Nick of Time. Yeah. And Nick of Time. <laughs> she's a really good character actress and I yeah. like her very much. So she ends up being the... Uh, the audience surrogate. Yes, the audience surrogate. And she's she's going to debate him on these merits if you, even if he won't debate the uh, the protesters. So he ends up doing that very sorkin thing where... He uh, lays out his case and then lays out the opposing case because, of course, they work for the White House, so they have to defend the government. But it's Toby, so he still has his old... Firebrandy. His old firebrandy hippie ideals. And and you sort of see that his basic crux here was, you know, kids today don't know how to protest properly. Sure. Um, And then afterwards, Josh comes back and he's... uh, And uh, because... 
Roma Mafia ultimately convinces Toby to go back in and tell the crowd what he just told her. Mm-hmm. And we don't see that, but then Josh comes back to uh, the West Wing later. And you should have seen Toby. He was great. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So that was that storyline. The CJ storyline is far and away my favorite in this episode, where she meets with the Organization of Cartographers for Social Equality, uh, led by uh, character actor John Billingsley. Huge. From Enterprise. Oh, is that where he's from? Mm-hmm. Okay, I just he was Doctor Flocks or yeah. something like that. Okay, yeah, he's been in so many. He was under like, Things, yeah, yes. sort of your go-to nerdy scientist. Yeah. Sure. Um, and their whole crux is that the map, as we all know it, was basically drawn by imperialists. The back Mercator in the, projection map. The Mercator projection map. Thank you. Uh, was drawn by sort of imperialist Europeans um, with all the biases and. Uh, uh, whatever, like, mm-hmm. that, white that people. implies. Yep. Doughy white people making the world. Well, the their whole doughy white colonial agenda. Right, yes, that's what I've been saying, agenda. So, um, and Josh at this point sort of wants to sit in because he's being Josh and he's kind of a dick and he wants to just sort of laugh at these people. Sure. And so, but then they start uh, talking about, well, the actual relative size of these continents is not what you mean and, and Africa is actually quite a bit bigger than Greenland and uh, they're showing her these alternate versions of the map, and she's having her mind progressively blown. Um, so at, I think this is the last sequence with them, where uh, this is Josh is uh, basically hanging by a thread in this conversation. What do He's maps have to do to go. with social equality, you ask? She asked. Salvatore Natoli of the National Council for Social Studies argues, in our society, we unconsciously equate size with importance and even power. CJ sort of looks at Josh and is like, yeah. I'm going to check in on Toby. Go. These guys find Brigadoon on that map. You'll call me, right? Probably not. Okay. It's a good line. It's not a Gilbert and Sullivan reference, for one. It's a reference to a different musical entirely. <laughs> um, Rogers and Hammerstein, I believe. Uh, I think it was Lerner and Lowe. I or Rogers. Oh, and it Harris. could have been uh, Sears and Roebuck. <laughs> All names you could name your twin dachshunds. You can look them up at the library. That's true. Um, so Josh takes off, and the cartographers have one last reveal for CJ. When third world countries are misrepresented, they're likely to be valued less. When Mercator maps exaggerate the importance of Western civilization, when the top of the map is given to the northern hemisphere and the bottom is given to the southern, then people will tend to adopt top and bottom attitudes. But wait, how... Where else could you put the northern hemisphere but on the top? On the bottom. How? Like this. And then here's a slide where the map is yep, entirely upside do down. Why not? Because it's freaking me out. <laughs> and CJ ends the day thus freaked out. <laughs> um, and there is a runner throughout the whole thing where Bartlett is choosing a site for his presidential library. The crux of that being that he feels like it's too early to be planning his legacy. And this will play into the MS storyline because he's still... Uh, unbeknownst to everybody else, not sure whether he's going to run for a second term. Right. So that's the episode. Um, well, first of all, since we talked about it last, the Mercator thing, when we watched it at the time, I didn't know any of that stuff. No, I certainly didn't know but any Dave of that stuff. But Dave did. Stuff. Oh, yeah. Well, I was a geography major in university. Oh, that's geography cool. Geography and history, so I had it from both sides of the argument. And how and well was this represented in the it, show? They did a pretty good job. Um, you know, Mercator is the sort of the the, the prime uh, uh, villain of the you know <laughs> uh, 
imperialist map agenda. Sure. sure. Um, and yeah, I mean, they hit all the, the major points, right? It was kind of funny. I remember do remember watching this and I called the whole plot line yeah. in like the first two seconds of yeah. them bringing that up. Well, because when they first talk about it, it's very vague. It's like yeah. something about the National Geographic Society yeah. or something and then it turns out it's not that at all. Yeah. 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 But the yeah, I mean, all that was correct and, yeah. you know, maybe some of the alternate projection maps you know, they yeah. actually weren't quite the best picks. And yeah. Blah, blah, blah. But it doesn't really matter. Well, and I like that storyline because in the better big block of cheese storylines, which I think they did at least two episodes, probably mm-hmm. three, um, that you get the sense of these people are right. Right. But the people who work in the West Wing just quite simply don't have the time in their day right. to be able to deal with that when they have all these huge problems. And that's part of the reason why Leo does this is just sort of give them a sense of it's a big world out there and there are problems that we're not even going to be able to get to, but at least have an understanding of it. Yeah. Although there's, you know, the flip side of that is like, is this really the sort of thing that would be brought to the white house? You know? Right. Like, wouldn't this be brought to the national Right, on a lower level. Science or I don't Uh even know. I'm ignorant. (laughs) Um, But, um, this, the Sam storyline is really the standout for me. I I found the whole, all the Toby Roma mafia stuff, completely tiring in that, yeah, in that sorkin way where it's like, okay, I didn't know about the Mercator map projection, so I guess I'm ignorant in that respect, but mm-hmm. like, you don't need to walk me through the whole WTO conflict like yeah. I'm a five-year-old. Like, right. everyone in your audience is not ignorant, and there are definitely times where the audience surrogate, mostly Donna, but not exclusively. Right. Where stuff was really explained at a very base level. Yeah, well, and Toby was often used as that kind of a cudgel where yeah. it well, was, yeah. you stupid people. right. Yes. And like, and it's tough with the West Wing because you've created these. There's these characters who all have their own sort of styles and foibles. Mm-hmm. And whenever Toby would latch onto an issue, obviously it would be presented in a way that is uh, aggressive and condescending because yeah. Toby himself is aggressive yes. and condescending, and the show acknowledges that. But it's tough to separate that character from the show because the show would uh, take on such a didactic tone. Yeah, that. It's hard to separate the two, and it's hard yeah. to just be like, "Well, it's just one character's opinion." So that that dispensed with. Yeah, I thought the Sam story was great. Although Wig Cop has to give a citation Ooh. to Rob Lowe <laughs> for whatever he had on his head, <laughs> it was pretty terrible. I don't know what he was shooting around this time, but whatever uh-huh. they made him cut his hair for, <laughs> the thing they replaced <laughs> it with wasn't working. No, it looked like a potholder. But anyway, <laughs> the the um. This to me, this whole this whole storyline was completely sold to me on the strength of that Nancy scene. Yeah, and I I love the detail that Dave brought out about her on the conference call. But I also love when you know he's he's been summoned. Yeah, she hangs up the call for a minute and he sits down and she's like, "How you doing?" He says, "Fine." And she's like, "Drop the drop the golf thing." Like immediately gets yeah. to it. Doesn't like butter him up or do anything. Like yeah. she, you know, she she's has the she has business. the authority in this in this. Scenario, but in addition to which, like, she is not kidding. Did she remind you of your mom? Really serious. Kind of. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And in the moment when she, he's being so, like, why he thinks he has something over on Nancy just because he wrote some fucking paper at Princeton is beyond me. But he's totally got that kind of, we heard in the clip. Yeah. That kind of bluster of like, now, now, Nancy. Yeah. I wrote a paper, so. (laughs) And she's like, really? Bam. And brings out that file. And his face, like, he just, it it completely freezes him. Like, it seems like he's shitting his pants. Like, not only that he's being put in this position, like, all of his illusions about Daniel Galter have been completely shattered, even before he opens it. But he's also like, 
Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't have clearance to look at this. Right. You could really get in trouble for showing it to me. And she's like, I could go to jail for yeah. showing it to you. Yeah. But she's like, you know, and then says she's blacked out yeah. all the parts. And so she tells him all of the stuff and, and, do, and asks finally, like, do you believe me? Right. And he's like, just shattered Which, and said, yeah, yes. Like, well, and it brings it back to such a character moment where she yeah. literally just has him look at it and she's like, you know me. Right. You trust me. Yes. You believe me, yes. right? Like, yes. I don't need to take this any further. Right. This is the end of it. Yeah. Because you know that I'm. Right. I, I wouldn't. Right. Lead you down the garden path. Right. Like, it's, but, you know, in yeah. much more. For and one, that is, economical amount of dialogue. Yeah. Well, and that is an instance where the show was very successfully able yeah. to separate the character's strident attitude from Mm -hmm. the shows because obviously he's proved to be barking up the wrong tree yeah um as i said at the beginning i'm i was never a huge sam guy Mm -hmm. i'm always less of a rob Lowe fan as everybody else i don't dislike the guy but Mm -hmm. he's never really been the highlight of anything for me i wasn't really crushed when he left the show Mm -hmm. um i felt like the whole thing with his father first of all came out of nowhere it wasn't supported by anything i don't think previously and who cares and who cares you're in your 30s so your parents are getting divorced and this was sort of the one of the first uh times where i really noticed how dark like actually physically dark the they would make some of these western shows where like just these working in these offices with Mm -hmm. just the slightest hint of light and it's just like you're you know right the leaders of the free world you know (laughs) get something brighter get it yeah, eighty watt. Um, I don't remember appreciating him terribly much in the pe- when at the time. Yeah, but I actually thought he was, you know, having having the the distance of you know ten years since yeah. the last time I watched it. I yeah. thought I thought he was really good in this episode. All right. Um. So I have a question. Yeah. And I, I'm not quite sure how to approach this without sounding whatever, but I'll just ask. There's a line that Rob Lowe has in here, and it's something to the effect of, I think it's when he's in the stairwell, maybe, and he's talking to Donna. I think I know what you're going to talk about. And he says something about America's been lighting the world's way for 200 years, and blah, 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 blah. He's just going on, and yeah. sort of like it's part of his, you know, yeah. how dare everybody, This everything. This man was had, uh, uh, whatever, took a strike against the idea of America. Yeah. yeah. It's a very speechwriterly moment. Yeah. It is. But what is. I, my question is, how is what is the expectation of how that line plays mm. to the audience? Yeah, because to me that was one of those America or else moments. Mm. You know, the bad American tourist abroad, not <laughs> knowing what everybody really thinks of America outside of America. Like I, just, I wasn't sure if that was supposed to play. Uh, you know what I mean? Like it was just one of those moments that took me out. And I'm like, oh, I mean, when you can... it was probably and this, you know, it was probably just supposed to be a. a Raw raw kind of moment, right? Well, I think it was partly that, and I would I would venture to guess partly also like so. This guy was a spy fifty years ago. Who gives a shit? Yeah, you know, and so that was why it was put in to be like this. This still matters even now. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was also presented within. Uh, it was in his lead up to saying this. This girl's going to find out who her father is. Like, right. it's presented within Sam's sort of escalating mania about yeah. this. Right. But so he's but talking sh- about America, but he's really talking about his daddy. Right. But I also, guess I wasn't. I wasn't sure if I was supposed to be legitimately rolling my eyes or not at that moment. <laughs> what 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 Sorkin's expectation was uh, for my reaction? Well, but I feel like but the show does go back to that kind of city on a hill stuff. Yeah. So it's not entirely like you should be rolling your eyes at it. No, yeah. I think you're supposed to look at it as Sam's kind of, and that's fine. And I right admit now. that's on me. 
Well, <laughs> and I feel like that was a lot of that was part of there was a pushback to this idea that the show was so super liberal that the middle of the country wasn't going to enjoy it. Right. And then sort of these moments where it was just like America fuck yeah moments <laughs> that yeah. just so everybody would know that Aaron Sorkin loves America. And I agree the the, the WTO thing did not work for me at all. Yeah. Um, it just seemed really flat and sort of um, just like there yeah. you know and it just seemed like they had to fill another 18 minutes or whatever yeah. that took um, the clunker of the episode for me um, where I just like oh geez really <laughs> was the end I think it was the very end of the uh, Sam Donna uh, plot line where he's just like oh you know my worldview has changed I thought everything was oh, as yeah. sound as latitude and longitude <laughs> it's like yes there's been no crossover with his other. It was just sort of like, wow, force simile alert. Uh-huh. It was and just that's like, not an expression. As no, it's not. It's, it, it's and it was just like, oh, wow. Even if he went with like as you know as fixed as the compass point. Well, I can like, just imagine somebody typing this out of t- and then he makes a reference latitude and longitude, thus tying it into the other major plot point of the episode. <laughs> Thank me very much. <laughs> I think and then I, you I, say someone. I think I liked how West Wing would get that kind of writerly, though. I know it's. I feel like the show had that kind of. It was the know. writer version of John Lovitz going acting. <laughs> <laughs> but he was, uh, the, it, yeah, he definitely had those like clunk playwright moments where, it's yeah, like, that you can't. You, that what works on a stage doesn't work on a sound stage. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I think that's probably true. I think I. That sort of came with the territory of the West Wing. So, uh, being you know the the most West Wingiest person yes. on in the room, how does this? Do you know what this episode sort of you know um, reputation is within the community? Is it uh, well loved? Is most it, people really love it because yeah. most people really love Sam, and it's one yeah. of the best Sam, Sam moments. Yeah. yeah, but I think people like the Mercator storyline yes. also. I, I did. I really true. enjoyed that. I thought that was. I mean, you know, because I mean, it was one of those moments where, yay, it's something I know. <laughs> yeah. But I just thought it was it was a nice little touch. I mean, I agree. Yeah. Who knows if that actually would actually make its way that far up the chain? But it was a cute moment. And yeah. It was. I thought CJ's that you know the the clip you played where she's like you know it's blowing my mind. Yeah, it was great. Yeah, it was yeah, a great man. moment. Yeah. And she played Alice, it really well. Allison Janney. She's so good. Yeah, yeah. she's amazing. Yeah. She's really good. Plus, yeah. if we're talking about maps, I think we all know what the largest landmass in in the world is. Uh huh. Canada. No. Oh, I mean the largest country. I meant the largest country. No, no. Canada's not no. the largest country? No. What is Back to school area, Anna. Well, I used I to be the, the USSR. Now it's Russia. Russia's bigger than Canada? Uh-huh. I need to go back to school. Yeah. I need every condescending speech in this episode told to me <laughs> You twice. win, Aaron Sorkin. No. <laughs> All right, so for me, I think I liked one-third of it. I didn't really get into the same. I mean, I, I think it was well-acted, if mm-hmm. not well-wigged. Um, but <laughs> It was not well-wigged. No. But uh, again, it was just sort of like he he, he just overpaints scenes for my taste a lot of yeah. the times, and this one was really overpainted. I thought, you know, yeah. <laughs> you know, like it was it was very stagey, and I think that's his background, and you like it or you don't, and sometimes it's too much for me. And and I, you know, I like that he didn't win it, you yeah. know, like that's nice. That part of it is, but for me, like the Mercator map was the best part of this episode. I like that bit. And I really wanted to like this episode a lot because I also, like the submitter, thought I really could stand to be the bigger man <laughs> and vote this one in. But yeah. this one, to me, is not like the best West Wing was. Yeah, I love I love most of the season two episodes. I don't love this episode. 
Tara? Uh, I am going to vote yay because the Sam storyline. It, honestly, it's it's only for that scene. Yeah. It's, yeah. I really love that Nancy Sam scene. It's a really good scene. All right. Well, West Wing, uh, someone's going to, to emergency. emergency. Someone's Somebody's going, going to, to jail. jail. I'm sorry, you did not make the extra hot great cannon. Okay, our last submission is from Stephanie, and it is a good one, I think. Hi, Extra Hot Great. My name is Stephanie Weir, and I'd like to submit an episode of Freaks and Geeks into the canon. This is a challenge, but you guys have stated before that in the case of some shows, you have to pick an episode that's a really great example of what the show can accomplish rather than the best episode, because for some shows, every episode is the best episode. The one I chose is titled Dead Dogs and Gym Teachers. Two of my least favorite things in the world, but um, I think you'll agree that this is a great episode. Um, on the freak side of things, Lindsay and Kim run over Millie's dog, Goliath, by accident. Fueled by guilt, they start hanging out with Millie, and Lindsay becomes horrified as Millie starts embracing the freak side of life. Yeah, she's pretty hot. I like it when the good girls cross over. Shut up! Keep away from her. God, who are you, her mom? Finally, Millie cracks open a beer, and Kim is so freaked out by this that she confesses to running over the dog. On the geek side of things, Bill Haverchuk's mom starts dating Mr. Fredericks, the gym teacher. Bill is disgusted by this development, lashes out, and eventually comes to terms with his mom, or with his mom hooking up with his mortal enemy. He extends an olive branch in perfect Bill fashion by letting Mr. Fredericks watch an episode of Dallas with him. This episode isn't even my personal favorite, but it's full of canon-worthy moments. The biggest reason is a gorgeous scene, one of the best scenes in the series, where Bill comes home from school, makes a grilled cheese sandwich, and watches Gary Shandling, all set to I'm One by The Who. It starts out slow and depressing, and we feel sorry for Bill, but then he starts laughing at Gary Shandling, and it looks like he's having the time of his life. It's beautifully shot and surprisingly moving. The episode revolves around a Who concert, so there are several Who songs in the soundtrack. This contributes to a lot of scenes, like when Bill and Mr. Fredericks have an awkward morning encounter in Bill's kitchen. Also, Mr. and Mrs. Weir listening to the song Squeezebox is classic. What are you saying, Squeezebox? Is it just me or does that sound filthy? Honey, I think it's about an accordion. In and out and in and out. Like the instrument. Gene, that is not about an accordion. That is in and out. Yeah, the in and out. In and out, in and off is what it's going. <laughs> I'm a huge Busy Phillips fan, and to me, Kim Kelly has never been more lovable. This is after she accidentally kills a dog, which is saying a lot. Everything she does in this episode melts my heart. I can't leave out the song Lady L. But anything you guys can say about it, you can probably say better than me. You couldn't see through my cloud of smoke. You held my heart, now it's bloody and broken. Is your green army jacket the only thing keeping you warm tonight? Lady L. Lady L. Lady L. She's my lady. 
What'd you think? Well, yeah, I, I, I thought I would hate it, but you know, I kind of, I kind of liked it. Really? No, man, that was terrible. Lady L. <laughs> well, I couldn't use her real name. You shouldn't use your real name. You're writing that stuff. <laughs> um, and finally, there's a line in the beginning by Mr. Kowchewski where he yells to Nick, "Hey, Coco, Coco this, this isn't, isn't the, the cafeteria, cafeteria from fame. fame." And that cracks me up every time. So that's my bid. I hope you'll consider it. And I just wanted to say that I love you guys. And whether you accept it or not, thanks for a great podcast. Bye. Thank you, Stephanie. We're uh, I, no I, relation. I suppose. Question mark? <laughs> no relation to a fictional character. <laughs> um, the part that we didn't include in the uh, squeeze box clip too that I also like is when it starts playing and the parents are sort of you know tentatively open to it, and then the mom goes, "I like the banjo." <laughs> Such a mom thing to say. It's very cute. My dad used to uh, drive us around in the car and he'd play the classic rock station. Yeah. and he would play and he'd sort of tell us who was who, and uh, he would always. Let, point out the who and he loved that song and we all thought it was a silly song as a kid yes. and of course he never told us about sure. like, well, and so no, and then so you not. listen to it years later it's like wait it's, and he had that same <laughs> like, in and out hold in on a second what it's going. How yeah. that, I wanted that story to go he, first time was on the radio he handed you a sealed envelope <laughs> do not <laughs> open until you're 18 <laughs> you'll Read understand box. <laughs> Um, so the, uh, I guess the A plot, given the order in the title is, as, uh, as Stephanie said, um, that Kim accidentally runs over Millie's dog Goliath with her car. And so I feel like they totally capture, I mean, a a lot of Lindsay storylines were like this, that sort of like that heartbreaking, like nostalgia feeling of like, I want to be cool, but I still love my old friends and I don't know you know and she's very committed to not telling Millie the truth yeah and Kim kisses up to Millie and then realizes that she actually kind of likes her and yes. not just for her big coat which is also a funny detail <laughs> they're gonna go shopping in the mall Kim Kelly and was Millie's like she loves my big coat she's been talking about it all day um but I think the moment that that I clipped where um the the freak guy Tells Lindsay, "Oh, I love it when the when the nerd girls yes. cross over, yes. the good girls cross over." And Lindsay's like, "Shut up!" And then that's that's part of it too. That's like, no, that's my that's my position in this yes. in this you know ecosystem. Yeah, and so that's partly like wanting to protect Millie legitimately, right? And partly also, it's her turf, yeah. exactly. Yeah, and that you know, and Kim Kelly Kim calls her out on it and says like, "What are you worried that you won't have Millie to hang around with when you you know get sick of being with your scary friends?" Yes. And, you know, she's not 100% lovable because at the end of that scene, she does threaten to physically fight Lindsay. That's right. <laughs> she, if she tells. Um, so it's it's a it's a great, and, a, and the payoff of, uh, of Kim, you know, blurting out the confession is great. And yes. Lindsay and Millie have a nice moment to close out yeah. the episode. Although, when they say, they, they, when they run over Goliath at the beginning, also it's named Goliath, well, was- they say, oh, I think I hit a squirrel. I was gonna say, and then they show the picture, and it's the two big teeny fucking, tiny girls and a gigantic it's seven dogs taped together. Fucking Marmaduke it's on this so thing, big. like that would have broken the car in half. It's the biggest dog there ever it's was. Seriously, so I'm so glad I was of, not the only person who had that. No, both reaction. of we were like that too. That that, that fucking dog, that, horse that of a dog, dog would not and get that's why this, this episode's not making the can. <laughs> Um, but it's it's a nice it's a nice episode yeah. a, a nice self-contained storyline for for Lindsay and Kim and Millie yeah um, and in terms of the Mr. Fredericks uh, storyline she's Stephanie is right the scene of Bill making the sandwich is totally silent other than the song and is great and we'll link it in the show notes because it's not you know there's not much point mm-hmm. in clipping it but it's up right. on YouTube and it's great yeah 
and features a glass that Dave owned also. <laughs> Empire Strikes Back, Burger King collectible <laughs> drinking glass. Like, what a jackpot, though, they hit with Martin Starr. Just oh, in my terms God. Of the Every time he smiles, it's like... And, you, like, the fact that he was so talented and so yeah. funny is, like, such bonus, but just the look of him is so perfect. Yeah. They got it really right with all the geeks. Sam Weir was legitimately... When you look at high schoolers now and you're so amazed at how little they are, mm-hmm. that's what Sam Weir <laughs> brought to that show. Yeah. And Neil, too, was just like, oh, my God, they're so the, young. Yeah, you're, you're used to seeing the 30-year-olds that are on yep. Glee. Yes. Um, but, yeah, Bill... This is the first, I think, we've ever seen of Bill's mom, also played right. by Claudia Christian, and she's um, a waitress. And so she's she's met... Doctor Coach Fredericks, when she, as she tells Bill, you know, I met him when we had that parent-teacher conference when you had those problems in gym class. <laughs> like she never connected. Maybe I shouldn't date this guy. Right. This is the sight of my son's constant humiliation. Yeah. Um, and Bill lashes out at him, and, and but then Coach Fredericks proves that he actually is a decent guy. Yeah. Um, they have Despite a disagreement. Despite the fact that he's Biff. He's Biff and he's a gym teacher. But their first dinner when he comes over, you know, they have a disagreement about movies and Bill says he just saw Stripes and and the coach is like, I don't like that guy. He's a wise ass. And then when Bill says he loves him, then he's like, oh, well, I guess if you're a comedian, you got to be a wise ass. Like he's trying. He takes them out go-karting. And then they, they, um, after he accidentally, because he's very competitive, he bumps Bill's go-kart and they, Bill uh, drives into a hay bale. He's crying in the car, and, and Coach Fredericks comes out, and they have this moment. But I know what you think of me. I think I'm a stupid jock gym teacher, right? Bing, you're probably right. But I don't know what to do. I mean, you know what I am? I'm a guy who loves your mother very much. She's a special woman. I love her. You know, she's had a hard time the past few years. What do you know about us? Only what she tells me. But I think she deserves to be happy. And, you know, I can make her happy. I've never cared about anybody as much as I care about your mom. I might not be as bad a guy as you think I am. I just love the the writing of that scene. It's so frank. Like he says three times in our two twice and then cares. Like, you know, I love your mom. Like yeah. she's a great lady. I just yeah. want to make her happy. Like that's really affecting. And yeah. and you know, even though it's sort of treated as a joke over the at the end, where you know Bill lets him into his world by by watching, watching Dallas, Dallas with him. With a, oh, Come on, so you guys, good. we all understand what a big <laughs> deal that is. Oh, and yeah. then he said, you know, he's like there. You know, the, the coach isn't really interested, and then he gets sucked in like almost immediately. Yeah. And he's like, "What's the land deal?" And Bill's like, "I'll tell you in the commercial." I'll tell you at the oh, commercial. Yeah. Perfect. It was a yeah. great part. So it's a it's a great episode. Yeah, I really identified with Bill in this episode. <laughs> that scene where he's just eating a sandwich uh-huh. in front of the TV. Reminded me so much of like a good three years of my life, probably when I was exactly the same age, when I was seriously, seriously into David Letterman's show. Yeah. Mm. In that same sort of finding my comedic voice yep. way. And it would be, it was on at uh, 1230 on NBC. And I had a tiny little TV in my room that I managed to get permission for eventually. And I would get the heaviest blankets. Even in the summer, I would make some excuse like I was cold. So I can have really heavy, thick blankets in the room. Yeah. And I would put the blankets over me and over the TV so I can turn the TV on with the headphones. This is back when TV still had headphone jacks in it. Right. And watch the 
TV under the blanket so there'd be no light leaks into yeah. the door. Yeah. And then still listen to everything. And I watched Letterman like for three years during high school that, yeah. or whenever it was grade school. I can't remember if it was, I guess it was probably grade through high school. Yeah. And it was just some, that same sort of moment. Like, and then it was like that weirdness of like not liking the things everybody else in high school likes right. being at the bottom mm-hmm. of the, uh, of the cast system and not having any prospects yeah. of moving up. Mm-hmm. And then the flip side of that is the, um, the, you know, the uh, storyline with uh, the girl, Lindsay. Wendy, Lindsay. Lindsay and sort of like her moment of sort of forcing herself to try to move up and how yeah. awkward yeah. and painful and, unlike herself that is yeah and you know I, i'm pretty sure i had that moment in high school too yeah. i can't mm-hmm. remember the particulars but i do remember thinking to myself i'm better than everybody else that i'm hanging around with right i could be cooler yeah. i could go to a concert i'm not gonna smoke but i could probably do something else <laughs> totally. i'll learn a dirty joke and tell it yeah. you know like this kind of stuff right? yes and this episode just had every high school neuron in my brain firing and it was all just like this sense flood coming back to me and it felt so bad for bill and that scene yeah you know it was just perfect i mean and then you're like oh uh, that's sort of like his weird little um you know escape paradise and well this moment that he has and it's perfect i had a very similar take on it which is that the show does a really good job of showing not only that these geeks are sort of besieged on a daily basis in school and whatever, mm-hmm. and they're at that bottom of the food chain, but it also shows the weird kind of freedom that they have to just find extreme levels of joy in the weird little things that they like. And yeah. you see it all the time where Sam and Neil and Bill sort of bond over these things that they love intensely, be it stripes or be it yep. like... Dungeons and Dragons yeah. or whatever and they're the, hell the truest they were really characters into. to themselves yep. in, the, in the show and you saw it in that scene so. where Bill is just like laughing his ass off and being so pure it was like pure human yeah. like joy and it's like yeah well that is the flip side of that is that when you don't have to worry about being cool when you're not striving yes yeah. you yeah. can just be totally free to find absolutely yeah. every bit of glee and nailed and it perfectly yeah. in this episode yeah, yeah. yep absolutely um, yeah it was really well done and, and definitely check out that clip then we'll post it in the show notes yeah. of bill eating his sad afternoon snack well yeah. watch the whole show it's on oh, afc yeah. i mean yeah. if you somehow have missed it it's it's every episode i mean like i said about yeah. friday night lights it's it's a it's just a they're each a perfect gem also kim and Lindsay had that great exchange about how stevie nicks is really a witch oh, which was like <laughs> yeah. you've had that conversation as a kid because like I you heard she put a rumors. love spell on Lindsay buckingham <laughs> Yeah, it's great. God, I love it. Yeah, that's good. It's All perfect. right, well, I think I know, but let's make this one official. Tara? Yay. Joe? Yay. Yep. All right, that rounds it out. Freaks and Geeks, and the episode is called what? Dead Dogs and Dead. Gym Teachers. Thank you very much. You are hereby inducted into the Extra Hot Great Canon. All right, well, that's it for a long episode of Extra Hot Great. We discussed four submissions for the canon. Friday Night Lights, I Think We Should Have Sex, yay. (laughs) Terriers Asunder, yay. West Wing, Somebody's Going to Emergency, Somebody's Going to Jail, nay. Freaks and Geeks, Dead Dogs and Gym Teachers, yay. Thanks to Libby, John, Mystery Lady with My Apologies, and Stephanie for (laughs) your submissions. You can... Send us audio, email, and comments. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Go to extrahotgreat.com to find out how. Remember, 
We're listening. <laughs> I am David T. Cole on behalf of Tar Ariano. Bye, y'all. Joe Reed. Yeah. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week right here on Extra Hot Great. Go home, Katie. I want you to, I want you to go to school on Monday. I want you to stay there all day. Because I don't want you at the place when I come by. Grab my shit. I'll be gone by the afternoon. And then what? Just know that I always loved you. <laughs> I love you more than anything. <laughs> but I never want to see you again. <laughs>